From Vine Pairs in New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And it's the Vine Pair Podcast. So before we kick things off this week, mm-hmm. I just want to chat about something really quickly. And that is that many of our listeners, especially our most loyal ones, may have n- noticed a new theme song mm-hmm. that accompanies this podcast. And that, you know, we felt like changing it up, going with some uh, original music. And this music has been written by Darby Seasai, who is a very talented musician out of Los Angeles, uh, used to be in a little band called The Antlers. He was really the best musician in that band. Um, really the only reason that band was successful. Uh, and is now writes lots of amazing music for us and other people. Has written the themes for all of our uh, other podcasts. So I just want to give a shout out to Darby. Thank you so much for this new incredible theme song. And we hope that you enjoy it. We're really into it. Uh, felt like it was time to have our own song, not one that you could just grab from the interwebs. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, just wanted to kick it off there. And now, Zach, uh, how have you been, man? Are you atoned? <laughs> as much as I ever can be, yes. Uh, I am doing great. Uh, we are recording this on Thursday, um, a day before my beloved Seattle Mariners play their first playoff game in 21 years. I know, Adam. Oh, wow. This violates our rule of, thank you. Violates our rule of no uh, baseball talk on the <laughs> podcast, but fuck you. Uh, this only happens once every 21 years. I'm, I'm led to believe. What's their seed? Are they good? Is this a wild card? What's happening? They are, yes, we they always are. talk about baseball on the podcast. <laughs> so mostly just about how Adam doesn't like it. <laughs> uh, they are the they are the second Go wild Bryce. card team. So actually, this is a little bit of a of a Zach Joanna showdown because they're playing against the Toronto Blue Jays in Toronto. Uh, for I know I know big Blue Jays fan. I'm sure uh, I'm sure Joanna uh, showdown against the Blue Jays. Uh, so by the time anyone actually hears this, the series will be over. But uh, you know I'm cautiously optimistic. And uh, so it's yeah. a three game series. It is a best of three series. All three games are in Toronto, so uh, a little bit of an uphill Why? climb. Why are they doing that? Uh, you, you know, no one is that in a baseball, new thing. It is new. Yes, baseball has changed its playoff format uh, regularly over the last few years. Uh, this year, they expanded the playoffs by one team per league. So the uh, there are two sort of these of these three game series among the wild card teams in each league and the team with the higher seed hosts all three games i i suppose to cut down on travel so they can play all three games yeah. in three days as opposed to extending the the playoffs which i think is actually kind of in its uh, essence good but it is a little unfortunate for for my mariners but that's okay you know we uh we got here which is uh like i said it's been a long time so um I don't know. What, I was a senior in high school the last time they they played in the playoffs and i am decidedly older than that now so what? So it's tonight, tomorrow night, and Saturday night? Uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So they'll be... Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So, yeah. So by the time anyone hears this on Monday, you will all know how my team did. But uh, I don't know here. Oh, so man. I can, Sounds like a I great weekend. Yeah. Do you watch hope. every game? I'm sure it'll be on at, in my home. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. And then casually... He's a, he's into, a Toronto. To Canadian sports. Yeah, it's for Canadian Toronto sports. teams. So wait, is this the American League or the National League? American League. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yes. Go Braves. So the, okay, so what? Uh, what that's all I know. Drinking? What have you been drinking though? What, well, what will you question. drink when you watch it? Both. Well, so those are those are different questions or different answers, um, although related. So we, uh, my, it actually was really sweet for me. My um, mom happened to be here on Friday uh, of the past week when the Mariners actually clinched the playoff spot. She was uh, coming down to spend some time with us and with uh, grandkids, and she's the person in the family that I have watched the most baseball with and has been the most uh, sort of loyal. A fan along with me 
Uh, we've been to, I don't even know how many games together over the years. And so it was really kind of special for me to get to celebrate with my mom. Um, and we opened a bottle of uh, sparkling wine from here in Washington State. Felt felt appropriate given both the uh, context and the uh, locale. A bottle of uh, Blanc de Blanc from Treveri Cellars, who I've mentioned on the podcast before. I don't know what I'll do if they advance. It feels weird to me. This is one of the funny things about the expanded baseball playoffs is like, theoretically, should the unthinkable happen and the Mariners were to win the World Series, there would be like five opportunities where they've either clinched a playoff spot or won a, ser- won a series to advance. And it's like, I don't know if I'm going to open champagne every single one of those or sparkling on every <laughs> single one of those. Um, I, I We're actually going to be uh, visiting with my mom and stepdad on Saturday which uh, during the second game so that I can watch it with her. Um and if they are in position to win the series, I might bring up some sparkling wine. But honestly, haven't gotten that far. Um, but actually, that same night, they made the playoffs. I also, uh, after the kids were asleep and after the game was over, was able to go out with my wife and go to an actual cocktail bar, which is a rarity wow. these days. Yeah, I went yes. to a friend's bar uh, called Roquette here in Seattle uh, and had a couple of cocktails. Um, but one of the the standouts for me, which was a, a drink called the Sea of Cortez, uh, which is sort of a tiki-esque or tropical style drink uh, with mezcal, with some blue, blue curacao. So yes, it was a uh, blue kind of blue beautiful drinks shade. drinks are having a moment. I yeah, think. I was going to say, we, we haven't, we've talked a little bit about colored drinks and we've talked about it in regards to the Empress Gin, uh, but yeah. we haven't really talked about it necessarily uh, blue specifically. But yes, definitely back in blue curacao, kind of weirdly back in, which is kind of fun. I don't know. I, I don't have a problem with it. It's interesting. It tastes um, good. Yeah, so it has um, also has some uh, yellow chartreuse, pineapple, lime, and coconut. So definitely felt Yum. you know tropical, was delicious, uh, vivid blue, and uh, was fun to drink. I had a couple other cocktails too, but uh, we'll leave it there. How about you, Joanna? What have you been drinking? Nice. I you know I haven't I haven't been drinking too much uh, recently. We we were a little down for the count in my house, um, but we did open a bottle of uh, Santa Julia El Burro Natural Malbec, okay. um, which was. Good. Very easy drinking. It was kind of plummy with dark fruits, um, pretty juicy without, without being funky. This is their foray into natural, quote unquote, natural wines. Mm, um, that foray. So it was not funky. I need to note that. Um, and we had it with burgers and it was good. So that, that that's kind of the standout for me recently. What about you, Adam? So um, a few things. We had friends in town this past weekend. Nice. Uh, so... Went to three of my favorite restaurants in Brooklyn. They are, they used to live in the city. They moved to uh, Goshen, Ohio, where okay. they bought a farm. Oh my goodness! Yeah, wow. and they like they have a farm and chickens and goats. And then um, Matt, who's the husband, makes cider. He naturally forages for it. It's like okay. for all these apples around cool. Ohio. And then he also has planted a vineyard of all hybrid grapes. Oh. Cool. And so he had his first vintage this year. So he's like really into food and drink. And Amanda, his wife, is one of Naomi's closest friends from like growing up. So we first went to Lalu, which is the best. Nice. And uh, Dave Foss, who's on our uh, VP 50 list, took really great care of us. And we he brought in some really, really old Blaufrankisch from Austria, which oh, I had cool. never had old Blaufrankisch before. I um, love Blaufrankisch. I do, too. Mm-hmm. And it was really uh, fun that he shared it with us. Um, so that was the first really great thing I drank. And then on Friday night, we went to Gage and Toner, and I had a 2007 uh, Zeno Mavro on their list from Domain Tatsis that was like 
honestly, if you'd blinded someone on it, you know, they'd think it was old Barolo. Mm. It was really cool. Um, and also like a steal on the list for like 80 bucks a bottle uh, for a wine that old was really fun. And then that- They have a great wine list. Oh, they have a great wine list. Like a really, really great wine list. Um, I was very excited about it. And then also um, that on Saturday of that weekend, we went to like Industry City and- like, I think there's a, like a sleeper that no one knows about is that inside the Japanese sort of like whole market, there's a small little omakase mm-hmm. spot and you can do omakase for like $45 a person. Mm, nice. And so Matt and I did omakase and drank a $12 bottle of sake that I don't even care what it was. It was mm-hmm. just really fun and good. And then that night we went to Papina and uh, James O'Brien, who's also on the VP50 and his team took amazing care of us. And we drank a really beautiful Barolo and it was a lot of fun. So just really great drinks Good all around. Wines, yeah. Had a white Negroni uh, at Papina that it was, the base was a, a lemon aperitif called Limone. Mm-hmm. It was really delicious as well. So it was um, this white Negroni with Limone, gin, and then they did Dolan Vermouth. And that was also that we kicked that off and then had the, um, the Burgundy. Sorry, the, the Barolo. There was a Burgundy there, too. But it was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was a fun weekend. We, we got together a bunch of friends who all knew them and went out to the different restaurants together. So that was that. Very been cool. Drinking. Yeah, fun. And uh, then I've been totally not drinking at all this week. <laughs> so before we jump into today's current topic, I did want to do a reprieve of a, a topic, like a revisit of a topic we had talked about a while ago, because... I'm a little interested to hear your thoughts. So basically, uh, for those of you who are very familiar with the podcast, in June, we did a podcast about the United States top 50 bars list. Mm -hmm. And we sort of discussed our issues with it. And this past week, the top 50 bars in the world came out, right? Mm -hmm. And like it was the perfect example of my issue with these lists. And that is that while the list has bars that are amazing on it, the order of those, the the bars on that list and their numbers contradicted the U.S. list. And I found it to be really confusing. So, for example, the number one bar in the U.S. on the top 50 bars in the U.S. list is the number 22 bar on the top 50 list. And a bar that is not the number one bar in the U.S. on the U.S. list is the highest ranked bar, U.S. bar on the list at number six, Double Chicken Please, which I love. I love Double Chicken Please. I think it's very deserving. But again, the order is different. And so so I, I find that like these lists are just always so problematic in that regard because I get there was probably a different judging committee. I get that there are different decisions. But then like, so Attaboy is never going to say they were 22. They're number one in the U.S. Why would they ever promote that they're number 22 in the world. Why would Double Chicken Please ever, you know, say what number they are in the U.S. and they're number six in the world and the number and the highest ranked on the world list U.S. bar. Right. Right. So, like, this is the problem, right? This continuous thing to reinforce the issue we have with the, these lists, which is that, like, they they really have no sense to them. Whereas if we were just giving out stars or we were just giving out a number rating or something like that, you there could be some sort of consistency there. And so it just was something that I, I thought was would be interesting to quickly talk about before we jump into today's con- like actual conversation because it has just happened yeah. and I was thinking about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think you make a really good point there. Um, 
I, I'm actually not sure. I haven't, I haven't, apart from the ones that you've mentioned, I haven't compared the lists side by side. Well, Are Katana Kittenfell, I mean, it, well, it's, it's behind. Two, yeah, it's like four on the North America list and six on the world's, or no, I'm like, inverting it. It's nine on the world list. Yeah. Right. But like, what if one drops off? Are there any that are just on one and not the other? I think there okay. were, but like it's, it's, and like Licoria Limontour is higher on the world list than it is in the North America list. Like it just, it's so weird. Yeah. I think it, I think it's weird. And I think, you know, from a marketing perspective, like you said, why would any bar use the lower ranking? Um, yeah. And I feel like, again, like I, I think what they, they're trying to do, their intentions seem to be good to me, right? They want, they say they're creating lists that help highlight them, you know, the magnificence of bars and people who are really pushing the boundaries and they want to give them, you know, their flowers, all that shit. But then I think they need to do a better job of having consistency between these lists, especially because the U S list was their first time ever doing it. Like, Mm -hmm. or else one list is going to matter and one list is not going to matter. Yeah. Yeah. And you also come across the problem of like looking at a list like this, wherein, you know, I'm not, I'm not familiar with, you know, any number of these bars. I mean, some of them I am, but like, you get the problem that's that you see some on the North American list, but it's it's even intensified here where like literally the only bars from the United States on here are in New York, with the exception of one bar from Miami, which weirdly doesn't include several bars on the North American list that are more highly rated than some of like double chicken please or whatever. Again, it's like yes, the explanation is probably it's a different, somewhat different set of judges, maybe working on separate projects, but it is weird that under the auspices of the same organization the lists don't agree more and that you know it's one thing if you have you know different rating systems or different organizing groups that list bars and obviously you know in the same way that wine producers do with ratings from critics they're going to you know cherry pick the ones that they look good on and ignore the ones that they don't but yeah when it is under the auspices of the whole of the same organization and it's not like the list came out a year apart or even six months apart it was a few months ago as you mentioned we did in june it's not like you know, there's a huge amount of time has passed and you could plausibly be like, okay, yes, maybe when we put the list out in June, you know, this was the order of North American bars. And now we think it's changed dramatically. That to me seems, let's say a dubious (laughs) suggestion at best. Yeah. I also think, you know, again, we get back to this issue that is that plagues these kinds of lists, which is that the world is a huge fucking place. And it's so hard to look at a list like this and not think that, you know, how much of this is tied to reputation, right? That you obviously need to have a certain prominence to get on the minds of enough judges to even get nominated. And that's fine to some extent, but it's the same problem that plagues any kind of restaurant rating system or anything like that, which is that you have to kind of play by a certain set of rules and and subscribe to a certain model for a bar before you're even... Mm -hmm on the radar for a list like this, which means that, you know, as we talked about in a a more recent episode, you know, there's this issue to some extent of cocktail bars all kind of looking the same the world over, right? Because they're all playing for this kind of, a certain kind of cocktail bar is playing for Mm -hmm. this kind of list. And it, they can obviously highlight local product and local ingredients and local technique and stuff like that to some extent, but especially in the cocktail space, I think it's harder to be, you know, to deviate that much from a format that, is proven Mm -hmm. to be popular and that, you know, appeals to this kind of list. Yeah. It's really crazy. So anyways, maybe there's a larger conversation down the road again about this, but I wanted to bring it up, you know, because the, the rankings just came out and just, again, just further sort of highlight that I feel like there's a lot of ways for these bars to get recognized. 
and I get what they're trying to do. But I feel like if this is to truly be taken seriously by the wider public and the press, there has to be some sort of standardization across all these lists. And there has to be, you know, again, clear format of what they're looking for, how they're judging, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Because if not, I I don't now understand why I would care about any list besides the world list at all. Yeah. At all. All right. So we published a story uh, earlier this week about the format of beers changing in the world of craft. So going from what are those 16 ounce tall boys to the 12 ounce beers that we're sort of used to when it comes to your general like domestic lager. Right. And this has become something that's more common recently. So I'm curious, first of all, like what do you guys think of those tall boys? I kind of hate them. Yeah, I really don't like them either. <laughs> I don't. Neither does our writer Josh Bernstein. I've he- I feel like I've heard this sentiment quite a bit, which yeah. is so interesting to me because it feels like craft beer went pretty full force into using <laughs> using this format uh, five years ago. Yeah. Um. So it's really interesting because it doesn't seem like anyone likes them. Zach, do you like them? No, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't like them for three reasons. I don't like them because 16 ounces is, you know, it's one thing if you're sitting at the tap room or something, or you're sitting down somewhere to have a beer, right? You're going to have a single beer, 16 ounces, fine, whatever. That's a reasonable size. And maybe a 12 ounce pour feels a little short to people, but in the at-home format, in the canned format, it's an awkward size for me personally, because I would generally speaking in my day, rather, you know, if I'm having beer, I would rather have two 12 ounce beers then what one 16 ounce beer and then i'm like okay well i've like had not quite as much beer as i want to have but if i open another one i'm like a little bit further down the road than i truly want to go especially with a lot of craft beers which as we've talked about a lot lately you know are clocking in six seven eight nine mm-hmm. percent alcohol right. or higher so it's like okay that's a big that's a lot of drinking right there you know that's two tall boys of a eight or nine you know percent alcohol beer is like the equivalent amount of alcohol to drinking a whole bottle of wine or maybe even a little more by yourself. And like, I mean, have I ever done yeah. that? Of course I have, but like, I don't want to, I don't want that to be my, my only real option. I also think it's like a little bit of an annoying storage problem. Um, depending on your like refrigerator setup, tall boys can be awkward to fit in your fridge. An issue that yeah. I face regularly. Cause I have so much other shit in my fridge, thanks to kids and stuff like that. And then the last issue against them, in, in my opinion, is that they've also like totally fucked with how we price beer in the canned format. Oh, yeah. yeah. The like plague of the 20 plus dollar four pack of beer. Like I get it to some extent craft beer, like, you know, making the stuff's not cheap and the raw materials are getting more expensive, et cetera, et cetera. But we've also kind of gotten to a ridiculous point where I'm sometimes looking for like an interesting beer to try out. And my option is a four pack of tall boys that cost me $25. And I'm just like, really? I don't. Well, Six bucks a beer for a take-home beer just feels like a lot. This, so this is my theory. Your third point that you don't like is mm-hmm. my theory for why they became so ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. So better margins. Yes, I yeah. think. So I think that what basically happened was, you know, Josh's article is really well done. Um, he's obviously a great beer writer. Um, he talks a lot about the glass and how, you know, craft beer went to a specific color of glass to denote that they were craft. But I remember for a very long time until I would say maybe 10 years ago, maybe even sooner than 10 years ago, there were a lot of craft brands in 12-ounce cans, 
right? Sweetwater was in 12-ounce cans. Uh, you know, you had all-day IPA in 12-ounce cans. Lagunese was in 12-ounce cans. Like, lots of people were in 12-ounce cans. Uh, Sierra Nevada, I think, has always been in its, you know, like, yeah. the pale's always been in a 12-ounce can. Like, also, they've had the um, the stubby little bottle, which I love. But they're been, they've been in these cans. And I think the problem was that those cans were associated with a specific price point, mm-hmm. right? So because of the size of those cans when it comes to domestic loggers, you're never going to convince a consumer to pay $30 for that six-pack. So what craft beer did really smartly, especially, like, the very trendy, like, you know, line culture craft beer brands is they moved to this four pack of tall boys and convinced you that this was premium and that you should pay more for it. Yeah. And it worked. And I think that a lot of consumers also started to believe then that this meant that the beer was fresher, that this meant that the beer was higher quality, that this meant that the beer was in some ways hazier, pillowier, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And that's what people, oh, if you don't have, oh, this brand's not in Tallboys, this must not be a legit, like, hardcore, you know, craft brand. This yeah. must be like an out-to-get-the-money craft brand, when actually they all were doing this. That's, what, that's why they went into the Tallboys in the first place. And now there's the blowback that obviously was always there. And I think the only reason they're willing to go back is because the goal has been achieved at this point. Yeah. I think that, I think that you make a really good point there about the line culture beers. Like if you're waiting online, you want as much what heady topper as you can possibly get. Right. Um, Cause you're not going to come by it frequently, but now we're, we're well beyond that. Nobody's doing that anymore. So it's a harder sell, I think to, people like us to go, I mean, we will, right? I spend, yeah, yeah regularly spend 20 to $30 on a four pack, um, which is just it's ridiculous, stupid. but, but it's not certainly not a preference. No. And I think that like the desire, as we're all saying to drink in a smaller format is pushing them back. But now I think a lot of them are assuming they can still charge the same amount of money. We'll see. Like, Will that hold up? Maybe. Like if all of a sudden we start seeing other half Green City in a six pack uh, at $30 a six pack in New York City, will people pay that? I mean, you would assume yes, because they're very comfortable paying the tall boy four pack that price. But who knows? Well, a six pack of 12 ounce cans, you get more beer than a four pack of 16 ounce cans, which is, I think, another way where the size format and people being generally bad at math has worked in favor of yes. the margins for craft breweries because you think, oh, okay, you know, a six pack of of 12 ounce cans, a four pack of 16 ounce cans, uh, it's about the same. And I mean, it's not like it's an eight ounce difference. It's not a huge difference, but it's almost a full, you know, 12 ounce beers difference. And that matters to people. It matters to me. I also think that the other piece of this is like, there's like the weird, like we've come all the way back around the bend again, where like craft beer is no longer trying to set itself apart from large scale right. production beer in the way that getting out of not so much out of into tall boys, but just out of the classic six, 12 pack format was so important to early days of craft beer, whether it was yeah. bottling. I mean, I, for one, I'm glad that we have largely seen the end of the fucking 22 ounce bottle, which is infinitely worse to me than even the tall boy. Uh, oh, I just agree. As a, that as was a drinker, the worst. <laughs> such a terrible format that I've loathed since it was first introduced or since I first came across it for virtually any kind of beer. I mean, you want to talk about your like, special releases that are like aged blah 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 fine i guess whatever put it in a big fancy bottle and charge me way too much money for it but other than that for any kind of regular drinking the 22 ounce bottle is is terrible but the 16 ounce tall boy is not like a vast improvement in my opinion i think the only other way you could say it has been a plus for beer drinkers or 
your culture such as it is, and it comes back to some of what we're talking about is it is a bigger canvas for design. And that's been a huge part of craft beer too. And not that you can't fit cool design on a 12 ounce can, but maybe it's harder to do, or you're a little more limited. I'm not the design person at all. Um, So maybe there are some limitations there that the 16 ounce allows you to get around to some extent. But again, to me, that's not like a big loss in at least my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's most interesting here, and you did touch on it, Zach, is that a lot of these brewers aren't, they're not doing away with their 16 ounce cans. They're just introducing the 12 packs of 12 ounce cans because it's an opportunity for them that they had, you know, left on the table for a really long time. And now they realize they don't have to. Right. So they can have both and they can take the shelf space, which a lot of them said there it well, when sometimes there's not space available for another four pack, there is shelf space for a 12 pack of 12 ounce cans. And I think it, as we're kind of flattening out of like craft and macro more and more, it makes a lot of sense. Like, yes, you're going to get a 12 pack box of 12 ounce cans, yeah. just like you would any other, whatever, light lager, macro beer. I mean, I think it's especially, uh, we've, we've already talked about this a bunch in other episodes, but tailgating, right. And sort mm-hmm. of party culture. Like I just, you're more likely to bring a 12 pack to those occasions than you are a four pack or just think to yourself, Oh man, am I going to buy like two or three, four packs to like be able to bring to a party? Well, I'm not spending a hundred dollars yeah. for this party. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so I'll buy a 12 pack and I'll supply my share of the beers. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think they're realizing, yeah, that that's money left on the table. And yeah. like, even if you are, Green City and you figure out how you can price a 12 pack, I don't know, 45, 50, even 60 bucks. People will probably pay it because they like the beer compared to what happens when they put, again, three, four packs together to make 12 beers. Because at the end of the day, no one's splitting these 16 ounces, right? These 16 ounce beers. So you're bringing 12 beers to the party and you're spending $100. Like just no one's doing it. So I think it's a very smart decision that they are going to realize very quickly has the potential to be quite lucrative for them. Yeah. Even if the margins are lower on the 12 packs and they seem to know that, but it doesn't matter. Well, the other piece of this too, that we haven't really talked about is to what extent is this move into the 12 packs and and 12 or move back into 12 ounce cans being driven to some extent also by the changing landscape for draft beer and that for a lot of craft breweries, part of the reason that they might have the inventory to put into these old slash new formats is because they're not putting as much beer in keg uh, because draft mm-hmm. sales are down pretty dramatically uh, for a variety yeah. of reasons. Some, you know, COVID related, some having to do with like, you know, um, supply chain issues and things like that. In that, if you have a lot of volume of beer and you need to put it in a, in some kind of format, well, as we've just talked about, the tall boy format might be, you know, already kind of at its maximum level that people are going to yeah. buy from you. And so you're really, your only other option is yes, in these other beer formats that people are familiar with. And where, as Joanna said, you can take more shelf space potentially and, or regain shelf space, et cetera. Again, it's also kind of pushing perhaps back uh, a little bit again, or not pushing back against adapting to perhaps additional other trends in, in alcohol. You know, we've perhaps seen a, you know, we've talked about a lot on the podcast lately, this kind of weird divergence between people who are looking for like low cal, mm-hmm. low carb, and obviously beer is not going to be low carb or really low cal in some cases, but at least looking for more kind of restrained drinking. And that might be another way where you have a 12 ounce can option that's appealing to people. It's less beer. It's they feel maybe okay having one or two and that, 
you know, without sacrificing your larger format offering for people who are less concerned about that or just still prefer the tall boy, whoever they might be. So, yeah, I think it's important to look at all this as happening, not just as a purely as about pushback against tall boys, but in the larger environment of what's going on in beer and in craft beer in particular. Yeah. And consumer behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting. Well, I'm curious, like what our listeners think of sort of this format. If Are you a fan of 16 ounce beers? Are you a fan of 12 ounce beers? Are you happy that a lot of brewers are moving back to the 12 ounce cans like we are? Um, <laughs> or are, are you totally comfortable buying 12 ounces to the 16 ounce cans and just like letting it ride? Mm-hmm. Um, so let us know. Hit us up podcast at vinepair.com. We've loved getting all the recent emails, reactions to the show, et cetera. Uh, always helpful in us coming up with new topics every week because it's a lot to come up with. (laughs) It's a lot. And Jenna and Zach, I'll see you back here on Friday. Talk to you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.